the new covenant and the knowledge of Almighty God. Hebrews verse by verse, part 30. The text is Hebrews chapter 8, 6 through 13. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. Hope you have a Bible in church in some form or another. Always have a Bible in church. Do you still remember you should no more go to church without your Bible than go without your pants? Exactly. Hebrews 8. There's got to be some visitor going, what, what kind of cult have I come upon here that they're... 8.6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. Obtained. That's interesting. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So Christ's ministry is better than the old covenant ministry because the promises are so much better. Seven. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he, that's God, he finds fault with them. It's the old covenant, the old system. When he says, this is quoted from the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them. That's a striking sentence. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Ten. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. When it says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, maybe somebody close that door over there, okay? It would just be a little there. Yep. Then we don't hear every word uttered in the nursery. Ten, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is why, that, see that phrase, house of Israel? This isn't the sermon. This is why Paul in Galatians can talk about these promises applied to Gentiles and say that it makes them the offspring of Abraham. He gets that from the Old Testament itself. One people under this new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then these strange words, 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. 
in speaking of a new covenant, so it's not just first and second, because then you could have both. But when you talk about old and new, now we're talking about replacement. Everybody see the difference? In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we look into your word. This text surely is all about you, the new covenant with our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us understanding that's rooted in your word, not in the trends of theology or the latest bestseller, but anchored to the inspired, inerrant, eternal word of God, the scriptures. In your name I pray, amen. Here's what I want to look at today. When we say Christians know Jesus, what do we mean? That's the question. And there could hardly be a more important question. When church people talk about their personal relationship with Jesus, what kind of a relationship do they have? Do they text? Do they go out for coffee? How did this relationship come about? That last question, how did this relationship come about, is, I think, particularly important for the church, for this church. Because to speak to a growing number of professing Christians, you might get the impression you might get the impression that they set the terms of their personal relationship with Jesus. Don't you be telling them anything about their relationship with Jesus because it's a personal relationship. Now, what that used to mean, what that used to mean was Don Horbin isn't a Christian just because Michael and Daisy Horbin were Christians. You, you, don't, you don't get this through genetics. It has to be something that, that you enter into for yourself. That's what it used to mean when we said personal. Now it means I got my relationship with Jesus and it's none of your business. Don't question or judge. They prayed a prayer... They said certain words at a certain time, and that's that. They're Christians. And it would be, it would be easy to assume that Jesus had no say in the matter. He just, he just accepts those who say they know him. And of course, we're happy when people know Jesus. I mean, that's kind of what we're all about. We want people to know Jesus. In fact, sometimes the church is so happy that someone claims to know Jesus, she doesn't want to raise any questions at all about the matter. We don't want to judge people. You know Jesus? I'm, how, how, how wonderful. Me too. And then we come to texts like this. Different kinds of texts. 
They're less studied in the church because they, well, frankly, they tell a, a less popular story about how one comes to know Jesus because, because texts like this talk about knowing Jesus from Jesus' side of the issue. Not just our side of the issue. The terms are fixed. They appear non-negotiable. And they shift the emphasis in conversion from how I feel about my connection to Jesus. And they replace it with how Jesus understands his connection to me. I think I told you before, I, I had, not all that long ago, someone who was in a clearly adulterous relationship in my office talking to me, and they said, Pastor Don, I want you to know I'm perfectly happy with my relationship with Jesus. And I think she was stunned when I said, I couldn't care less about how you feel about your relationship with Jesus. It's like, well, we are a pastor, for crying out loud. I said, what really matters to me is how Jesus feels about you. Not how you feel about him. And the emphasis in this text isn't just on my personal relationship with Jesus. To, to use Jesus' terminology, let's use his, his terms. It's a matter of my acceptance of the terms of a new covenant with him. That's why, by the way, as he came to the end of his earthly life, he described the atoning shedding of his blood as, 1 Corinthians 11.25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Covenant means agreement. Emotions are affected and renewed, to be sure. I'm not arguing against that. There's a deeply rooted joy that has kind of an eternal glory all bound up in it that nothing else on earth can duplicate. But, But just so we understand, my emotions don't produce conversion, not for one second. My feelings don't produce conversion. It's it's the nature of the terms of the covenant that eternally change my status before Father God. And that's what this text is all about today. Point number one. Jesus remains an empty religious myth until he is known both as mediator and minister of a new saving covenant. I chose those words, mediator and minister, because they're in our text. It's in chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained, here it is, a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he, there it is, mediates, is better. Since it is enacted on better providence promises. So, ministry, mediator. Those are the two uh, defining phrases in that important verse. And, And both those words, ministry, mediator, they relate to that issue, how do people know Jesus? Our writer says, Jesus, the Christ, has has obtained a ministry 
And then he says that ministry is a ministry of mediation. The covenant he mediates. Pastor Don, who cares? Well, you should. You should. This matters. It's practical. Biblical truth is always practical when you, when you look right through it to the bottom. To, to try to love Jesus personally without basing that love on a knowledge of his ministry of mediation is like trying to love Santa. There's no adequate foundation for feeding and growing that love. It'll it'll turn into an imagined personal relationship. You'll you'll be forced to re-pump up your love for Jesus every Sunday worship time. And that's tiring. Please understand... You have to be careful that people don't misunderstand. Those worship times are very precious and vitally important. But but what they should be is a, a passionate expression of love that already exists in understanding this gracious, loving new covenant. It's not a time to try and convince yourself that you really love Jesus. Let me say it again as clearly as I know how. This applies to me. It applies to you. It applies to all the friends you see on Facebook who are redefining how they understand the Bible and how they relate to Jesus and and re-imaging everything. It's very common these days. Let me say it as clearly as I can. You can't know Jesus. You can't. Know Jesus until you know him on his terms, not yours. Everybody got that? You can't know Jesus. You can think you do. But in reality, you can't know Jesus until you know him on his terms rather than yours. His terms are clear. He has obtained and he exercises a ministry on my behalf... And that ministry is mediator on behalf of Don Horbin. We're going to consider the details of that in in the next point, what that means. But here's why it's so important. We need to understand the gospel we're exporting to the world. There are all sorts of people who admire Jesus, and they think that means they know him. There are all sorts of people who think this world would be a better place if we all just tried to live like Jesus. What would Jesus do bracelets are all over the place. There are religions, aplenty, which consider Jesus one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. Teachers abound who admire the Sermon on the Mount. There are countless churchgoers who love having a friend in Jesus who can just come and apply a convenient rinse to their wrongdoings so they can continue in their self-directed lives. None of those people know Jesus. Not on his terms. 
their personal relationship, the one they think they feel, is a relationship with their own imagination. It's common. That's the bad news. Here's the good. There is a much more durable, satisfying, joy-producing way to know Jesus. And that leads to point number two. I want to look at what the New, Test, New Covenant implies and how Jesus mediates it. You'll see it in verses 6 to 9. These are the kind of texts that you need to read slowly and carefully. They don't read, I know they don't read like the 23rd Psalm. They're different. Each phrase carries some freight in it. Six, seven, eight, nine of chapter 8. But as it is, so this is the way it is, see. Everybody can have an opinion, but this is the way it is. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent, as much more excellent than the old, as, as the covenant... He mediates. So there's those two words. Ministry. Mediation. As the, cov- as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enforced enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless. There would have been no occasion to look for a second. So was the first covenant faultless? Pretend, let's pretend I'm talking to you. How do we know that? Well, because there's a new covenant. And there'd be no reason for one, right, if the first worked just fine. That's what he's saying. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah... Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them. Wow. Declares the Lord. The logic of those verses, it really isn't as complicated as it might appear. Verses 6 and 7 reveal that Jesus obtained a ministry... For a newer, better covenant. That's 6 and 7. He obtained this ministry through his his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant bodily resurrection, his ascension to the throne of grace where he intercedes at the right hand of Father God. So 6 and 7, Christ has obtained that better ministry. Next, quoting the prophetic words of Jeremiah... Our writer tells us why this better covenant was needed. It's in 7, 8, and 9. And and what he does is he just retraces the betrayal of that first covenant given by Moses after the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. And he says the Israelites didn't keep the covenant. We know that. They grumbled even while being delivered. They disobeyed the commandment to go into the promised land. 
They worshipped the golden calf. At the same time, Moses was receiving the covenant from God on the mountain. They married pagan wives. They worshipped the idols of the surrounding nations. They didn't keep the Sabbath. It goes on and on and on and on. They didn't keep the covenant. So that list of covenant-breaking choices, it feels endless. And, and, and the bottom line of all this rebellion, it's recorded in those painful, fearful words. The end of verse 9, For they did not continue in my covenant... So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. There you have it. There were these two parties, right, in this covenant. God kept his part of the covenant agreement. Israel didn't. And according to binding covenant terms, that couldn't possibly end well for Israel. That could end in no other way than God's righteous anger and wrath. And those final words, they're almost hard to read. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That's the terms of the covenant. That was the deal. And what our writer means for us to do is to recognize something. Clearly, clearly, a performance-based covenant between a blazingly holy, just God, a covenant between him and dark-hearted, sinful people, it's not going to work. This can't work. And those sinful people were in no position to dictate the terms of any other covenant. What if, what if this blazingly holy God were also infinitely loving and merciful? What I mean is, what if, what if he, what if he took it upon himself, nobody forced him, what if he took it upon himself to initiate a covenant of a totally different kind? What if he initiated a covenant that started with sinful people as sinful people? And what if he took it upon himself to, to here's this holy God, here's sinful people. What if he took it upon himself to, to find, to put someone in the middle? Someone to faithfully and completely mediate. For both sides. We know what a mediator is. What if there were a mediator? What if Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better? It's enacted on better promises. Well, we never had. We never had a mediator before Christ. We had prophets who said, you're, this is what you're doing wrong. 
This is what you should be doing. We had laws. Laws, sacrifices. Our text calls them symbols and shadows that screamed out our need for a mediator. Our need for a sinless, eternal minister who mediates on our behalf. That, that's, that's the kind of covenant we need. Right? That's the kind of covenant we need. God's not changing. We can't save ourselves. We need a mediator. And so I thought, let's just go over. I've never done this before. Let's go over and see what having a mediator implies. I've got about four things. We won't be long. Here's what a mediator implies. A, it means the two parties in the covenant have no immediate access to each other. That just makes sense. If we can just relate perfectly on our own, we don't need a mediator. Agreed? So once we talk about a mediator, what that means is these two parties, as they exist now, they can't get together. They can't possibly get together. Let that rest deeply on your mind. Let that settle a bit. Every time we come into this place, how, do, how does a pastor, first, how do I do it for myself, and then how do I help you do it, that, that there's a miracle taking place every time we come into God's presence? There is no moral possibility whatsoever for me to have unmediated access to God. Impossible. Remember that. Remember that each time you close your prayer time with that mindlessly repeated phrase, in Jesus' name we pray. B, here's what else having a mediator means. The one mediating the covenant must be trusted by each party in the covenant. That is, he must have a way of relating to both sides. If he only represents one side of the covenant, then he, he can't accomplish the goal of mediation. He can't be invested on one side only. He must be invested on both sides. That's what a mediator does. See, if the parties of the covenant be of two completely different natures, so we're not just dealing with two human beings here, but if they are of two completely different natures, then the mediator in the middle must participate in each one of them completely. There is no Christianity without the Trinity and the Incarnation. You can have Judaism, you can have Islam, you cannot have Christianity. It's gone. The necessity of this, it might not appear at first glance, but, it, but it's essential. If the mediator 
is only of a divine nature, if the mediator is only of a divine nature, then he will treat the people for whom he mediates exactly the way Father God treats the people. All we will get is justice and punishment for our sins. If the mediator is likewise only a fallen human being, like those he represents, well then, he'll have no more access to a holy God than they have. Do you see the dilemma? D. The mediator must be capable to take out of the way that which keeps the covenant partners apart. Sin is the problem. So, another religion, another prophet, another set of laws, all that will do is define my sin. It, it can't remove it. That's the point of this text. The removal of sin was never accomplished under the old covenant. If it was faultless, he says, we wouldn't need a new one. So the removal was never accomplishment, never accomplished, rather. Our writer, by the way, has shown that pretty vividly twice. Here's two verses. I'm looking at 7 and 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He says it more bluntly in 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, everybody say that word, obsolete. It's not me, it's the Bible. There is never going to be a time when all God's people are going to go to some temple in Jerusalem and meet God in the temple. That covenant is obsolete. Christians need to think through that sometimes with their eschatology. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is going to what? Vanish away. So the mediator has to be able to take out of the way that which keeps the two parties apart. Lastly, E, the mediator must supply assurance to both parties that the terms of the covenant will be fully supplied to each, God and man. This is the beauty of redemption. This Christ does for Father God... By providing the actual human righteous keeping of the whole law in keeping with all the demands of divine justice. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. The man, Christ Jesus, satisfied all the demands of the law in the eyes of God. And Christ supplies the covenant terms on behalf of mankind by restoring relationship with Father God as adopted sons and daughters, enjoying all the covenant provisions of mercy and pardon and adoption and eternal life. This works, is what our writer is saying. This covenant works. Point number three. 
the blessings of this new covenant will never cease because the ministry of our mediator is ongoing. I think somehow people get it in their heads that I, I asked Jesus into my heart, and I'm not mocking or belittling that. I believe people get saved like that. But I think somehow people, because we haven't emphasized what we're talking about this morning quite so much as the doctrine of justification by faith and being saved, I think people assume that once I got saved, now I, I'm, I kind of stand on my own before God. He washed my heart clean, and, and we're good from here on in. And that's not what this passage teaches. I need the ongoing ministry of Christ, my mediator, as much now as the day I got saved. He, he keeps working for me at the right hand of the Father. And for you, by the way. And you wouldn't stand before this holy God till the end of this service if it weren't for the ongoing mediatorial ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what I rest in. Look at 10 to 13. The blessings of this new covenant will never cease because the ministry of our mediator is ongoing. See what he says here? This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. I'm going to talk about that. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So this one, the old covenant, what it's doing is this. It's fading away. What he means to say there is this new covenant doesn't, doesn't fade, doesn't grow old, doesn't become obsolete. This new covenant is ongoingly effective. Projected as far as you want into the future, it works as hard as the day Christ died on the cross and as the day you first came to Jesus. The effects of that covenant... You know, like that Energizer bunny that you see on TV. They, it just keeps going and going and going and working. Now back to our opening point. When someone says, I'm a Christian. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's what I understand them to be saying. I know what has happened to me. Here is now what is true of me in increasing measure. I will, I will put my laws into their minds. If you're telling me you're a Christian, I'm assuming that your mind craves pleasing God like a newborn baby craves milk. That's my assumption. I, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will, I will be their God. They shall be my people. 
Don't just think of my people group hug. Think of my people. At my disposal completely, 24-7. They're mine. Hear God speaking these powerful words. I, I change the whole way of thinking in my new covenant people. If Jesus mediates this covenant, and that's the only way you have access to God, I dominate their minds. Christians don't crave what they used to crave. They don't glory in what they used to glory in. The only deep desire they have in their hearts is my joy and my glory. They are mine in the deepest, truest sense of everything they hope for, everything they dream of, everything they fear. I'm sorry, but I frequently find myself thinking the church needs to be reminded all over again of the nature of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. We don't set the terms of our personal relationship with Jesus. We don't modify the terms of our personal relationship with Jesus. It's a covenant relationship. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. No wonder the Lord said, do this till I come back. Don't ever forget this. They will be my people. It's wonderfully true, isn't it? That God will remember their sins no more. 13. But he puts his law in our minds and hearts. So, so the, very, the very residue of sin starts to become a thing of the past. I, I can't continue in it. He takes the very ghost of sin out of my heart so I can start to think of holiness and purity in the terms of his son, my mediator, rather than my own small agenda for my life. Four. We're almost done. I promise. Here's the way I wanted to wrap up this message. The glories of the new covenant are not out of anyone's reach. I think of people who might be sitting here this morning and, and you hear me talking about God's laws on your mind and on your hearts and, and he owning my people and, grad, and the transformation and the change. That it's not just a matter of somehow I'm going to start thinking nice thoughts about Jesus and call it my personal relationship. But, but everything, everything the, my orientation, we like that word these days, my orientation changes with the new covenant. And there's got to be people sitting here thinking, glad that works for you, Pastor Don. <laughs> you don't know me. This works for other people. Works for Ron Dyer. Never going to work for me. You don't know my past. You don't know how many times I've tried. And that's why I want to close with these words. We read, I'll make this covenant with the house of Israel after those days. 
I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. They should be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. This is not a passage to deny the importance of sound teaching in the church and in the life of discipleship. How could it be when our writer has been teaching about the Old and New Covenant for eight chapters now? What he's saying is the, the reality of the New Covenant won't be a second-hand reality. It can't be imparted by parents or a priest or a pastor or a church. You, you must enter the new covenant mediated by the risen Christ yourself. And then, and then the best news of all, everyone can. That's the reason for this. Is that you? From the least to the greatest. For all who fear the great recreative work observed in some other life can never happen the same way in yours. There's that wonderful promise here. That, that fear that somehow grace plays favorites is abolished in the new covenant. It's from the least to the greatest. That others might be more qualified, all of that is erased by the equally applied fruit of our divine mediator through his ministry to all participants in the new covenant. So let us come boldly to the throne of grace. It's, it's for you. See, If this was still a works deal, there might be some slightly more qualified than others, but there's no one qualified. I think we're all agreed. I think we're all agreed. But because we have this mediator between the worst sinners imaginable, and without in any way denting and, and, and compromising and dumbing down the holiness and justice of God that is so common in the body of Christ today. You don't have to do that. You know why people do that? Because they want to make God approachable. And you know why they want to make God approachable? Because they're not talking enough about the mediator. You don't get close to God by saying, oh, he's not quite as holy and wrathful and legalistic as you evangelical Christians were raised to believe. He's, he's much more huggable. Brian Zahn those guys in their books. You don't have to do that to God. Because in his love, he, he in his love initiates. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But he didn't just die and that's it. He has an ongoing ministry mediating for Don Horbin. And it will never stop. It will never stop. And that makes me happy in Thanksgiving on church. Really, really does. Let's pray together.